0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Class 3 of The Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1. As you can see, I'm not home this week. I'm on the road. I'm uh, coming to you tonight from lovely Charlotte, North Carolina, um, where I am uh, for a conference this week. Uh, So I, I, I hope that my interface won't be... I'm doing things a little bit differently because I'm on the road and I don't have my normal setup. Um, so I hope things don't uh, end up looking too different or nothing too strange happens. But uh, if it does, I apologize in advance for that. Um, so we are uh, al- <laughs> already uh, fairly disastrously um, uh, uh, behind <laughs> in our discussion of the Book of Lost Tales. And um, uh, we are... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm kind of... Um, uh coming to peace with that actually uh you'll notice of course in the schedule that i have uh slotted some not weeks off weeks like next week we're still having class but i don't have new reading scheduled for next week um that is largely because i had a sinking suspicion <laughs> that we would be behind by this time um neil says many of you are behind in the reading uh, this is certainly, you'll notice, especially those of you who did the Unfinished Tales class, um, the uh, uh, the reading in the Book of Lost Tales is significantly more um, challenging, I think, than Unfinished Tales, even the early, you know, the, the first stage sections of Unfinished Tales. Um, this is much harder going in many ways both because of the particular approach that Christopher Tolkien has taken that is the fact that we have you know the text and the notes and sort of the commentary and you know that, that kind of scholarly apparatus that he's placed around the story which is much more intrusive in that way than it was even in Unfinished Tales and now again I'm not complaining about that I, I really do think it was the best way for him to have done it but it makes it a harder read um, and harder to follow along and certainly harder to immerse yourselves in but it's also just simply I think much more alien um, I, with unfinished tales, there is the sense—well, um, at least I always have the sense in reading unfinished tales that I am, you know, getting something exciting. You know, that I'm, that I'm sort of seeing behind the scenes. I'm, I'm learning more about the stuff that I really wanted to know. Here, we're encountering something that's strange, something that's kind of familiar that we think we know, but it's, but it's kind of strange. And in some ways, um, in some ways, even the elements of familiarity to it make it almost the more off-putting. Um, you know, one example of that I plan to... plan, mind, not hope, plan, to get to tonight, um, is the depiction of Fui. Yeah, you know, if you love Nienna as much as I do from The Silmarillion, then, uh, the character of Fui as it is described, um, in, uh, in these chapters is kind of difficult, uh, to, to, to sort of deal with. uh, Roy has suggested I trust flippantly that we just skip some chapters um, Roy, that is certainly not going to happen um, but I am however going to be kind of jumping around a little bit um, I'm going to, today go back and do I'm, I'm not just going to sort of go through and do the stuff in order last time that I didn't get to and then I, I'm going to do some <clears throat> some stuff from last time um, but sort of combine it with some things, I, I want to sort of follow some uh, Primary themes uh, between this week and and next week are our, our sort of catch up week, uh, and the way that um, that I'm wanting to structure that is I want to spend tonight primarily looking at the depiction of the gods, at the depiction of the Valar, and and these other spirits that we hear about, as well as looking at as I was as I mentioned at the end of last class where I wanted to begin tonight's class is looking at some of those essential m- mythic ideas that uh, that we can see really informing. Tolkien's thought stuff that which is which you know we can know is going to be important for the whole rest of Tolkien's career and which I think we can, we can really see um, uh, some really powerful early versions of in these early stories. But then we're going to look at the depiction of the gods. We're going to look at the Valar themselves and 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 some of the you know their, their actions and motivations. And then we're gonna. Uh, then next time, I don't have any serious aspirations. I'm getting to this tonight, um, but next time I then want to look at the children of Iluvatar. Um, uh, the discussions from chapters two and three about the fates of the children of Iluvatar. Um, you know the, their natures and their fates, and and uh, and in particular, looking at that really intriguing stuff that Christopher Tolkien draws attention to in his commentary about. The sort of eternal destinies of the children of Iluvatar, and the way that Mandos is set up, and and that kind of confusing business, and his poem about Habanon and, uh, and all that stuff. So I, that stuff I'm still going to do. We're not going to get to that tonight. I'm going to save that for next time, and combine with that next time a discussion of the coming of the elves, and they're bringing uh, their the the, uh, the Valor bringing them over to uh, uh, to Valinor. So that's the plan that's 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 how we're gonna do this um, so uh, uh... you know I, I and and i i think we'll be back on track but however i do still want to encourage you as we come into next week next week is our first official q a session uh... and i f- i don't want to completely lose the q a element uh... in my desire to catch up with what we've gotten behind on So. I do strongly encourage you, you know that the you know that one of the other reason that I schedule those classes is for you to be able to have these times to sort of pause and look back on what we've done so far, obviously, the discussions that we've had, the elements that I'm really you know sort of choosing to. Um, to highlight and to emphasize, these are things that uh, you know that really interest me and that I think are really fascinating. And thinking, especially in thinking about them in conjunction with Tolkien's later works, but goodness knows, not only am I not going to cover everything, but uh, you know, we're not going to. Uh, in there are many different angles, and many different um, you know sort of questions that could be asked, or or, or sort of trains of thoughts thought that could be pursued uh, in talking about this material. So if there are you know things that I haven't hit on, stuff that you would like to talk more about. I'd be very happy uh, to uh, to see if we can work some of that into. So I encourage you again. Uh, you can send me an email. You can you can post that. Um, in the questions box tonight, um, you know, as I've done before, if you could kind of flag that at the very beginning of your uh, comment, if you could just put the word topic uh, and then colon, it's just so that I know you're proposing a new topic and I can I can come back to that for next time. Um, or if you want to send me an email, you can do that to Olson at mythgard.org uh, is the best way to do that. So uh, anyway, okay. So on to what we're going to do tonight. On to uh, to to myths and the gods um one of the myths that comes up um and, and so, which i think is really fascinating uh here is um this issue of the sea longing um this of course is you know is something that we get very persistently throughout um throughout tolkien's works um Their hearts were glad because of air and the winds, and the matters whereof the earth was made, iron and stone and silver and gold and many substances. But of all these water was held the fairest and most goodly, and most greatly praised. Indeed, there liveth still in water a deeper echo of the music of the Ainur than in any substance else that is in the world. And at this latest day many of the sons of men will hearken unsatedly to the voice of the sea, and long for they know not what. Now that's certainly something that we've seen lots and lots of times, right? Um, you know, if you read Tolkien, um, the sea longing is something that continually comes up. Um, this, of course, is an element we, you know, we, we get, um, this, this sort of discussion of water and the significance of water um, is uh, is something that we see in, in the later version of the Inulindoe, you know, the published Inundale. Um But but I think that you know, his emphasis here uh, is to me particularly interesting because of the way in which he's directly invoking um, uh, and linking it to this question of the sea longing. And you see what he suggests about that, right? Um, that this longing seems to be an intrinsic... You know, on, on the one hand, the subject of this paragraph is water. Water right, the nature of water, and through that sort of the nature of creation itself, the creation as we see it manifested uh, in the music of the Valar, and the significance in many ways of that metaphorical structure, the the the, the, the significance um, of this whole figure of the music of the Ainur, that creation itself, the world as we see it and are surrounded by it, is the embodiment of these plans and desires, and remember the of, of 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 the choices and and wills. That is, in a sense, of the desires of the Valar themselves. Right? They they added to you know to the music. They added their own wills, and they uh, um, and and those things are embodied in the elements and in the world and in history also. Um, but we see this you know we we're given this glimpse of the hearts of men in particular, the sons of men, um but really of 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 perhaps as we'll go on to see all of the children of the Ainur, this uh, or the children of Luvatar, excuse me, misspeaking myself um this 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 nature of this longing is uh, is an intrinsic first so again in in a way, this is about water but uh, but in I think you know in sort of a deeper way, this section is telling us something about the hearts of men, um, about, about the hearts of the children of Louvitar. Um, and that I think is, uh, is this touches on a point which I think is, is clearly critical. Um, I think critical to Tolkien's uh, uh, mythic concepts throughout his career, but especially keenly stated uh, in these early writings Um, the, the, the essence of desire, the importance of desire, um, and the way in which it's desire that seems to link the hearts of the children of Iluvatar back eventually to Iluvatar himself through the world, right, their desire and their love for the world, and their desire and seeking of the Valar, but again, through these and all of these things back, um, you know, I think again to that music that is given to the Valar in the first place. That's the context of this in the music of the Valar, who sort of suggests that to me. Um, Arthur asks him to just sort of evolve into men seeking beyond the world. You know, Arthur. In some sense, I do think um, we're going to see developments in that way. And hang on to that quest to that question for when we come back next week and talk about the fates of the children, because I think that this is all wrapped up in that. Part of the issue is that. He doesn't, ha- he doesn't seem to have worked out nearly as clearly the, um, the, the, the nature of the fates, you know, the ultimate destinies of the children of Iluvatar. It's not, as, not nearly as clearly articulated. And I don't think it's just a question of articulation. I don't think it's as clearly worked out uh, in his head here. Um, so you're right, Arthur, that, that sense in which men desire something further um, is something which does get emphasized in his later writings. But, we, I, but here, we're not seeing that emphasized. Right, um, Men long for they know not what. But again, the rest of that that paragraph seems to suggest to us, men might not know what it is, but we know what it is. Right now, We, who are now hearing, in fact, this is what's being revealed to Ariel as he's hearing the story of the music of the Einar. This is one of the things, of course, that's arousing desire within him himself as he listens, right? Um, let's see... Um, Okay, Roy asks, why water, though? It makes intuitive sense, but I still don't really understand why water and not stone or soil or something else. Um, you know, Roy, in some ways, I think, once this, this, I mean, this is a simple answer to that question, and I promise you in advance it's not going to be a very interesting one. Um, but water is the one which most obviously connects with the, with the, the, you know, with the imagery, with sort of the metaphor that he's building. Here that he's working with. Um, that is to say, with a metaphor of music, um, soil or stone is nice, but it's not very musical, right? Whereas water is indeed very musical, and the sound of the waters. Um, and, you know, of all these, water was held the fairest and most goodly. Why? Um, because, it doesn't say because, right? Indeed there liveth still in water a deeper echo of the music of the Ainur than any substance else that is in this world. That, although he doesn't say because it, that seems to be the reason, right? Why water is held the fairest and most goodly and most greatly praised? Um, so you know, right, I think it's it's sort of the musical the 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 role that he has placed music in. You know, sort of the 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 essence um, uh, the essence of of the sort of the musical nature of water is um, clearly an essential part of the of the of the of the process here. Um, and the way, and you know, thinking. So, so we have to sort of think back from this to the way that mu- that the music is being used, and the way we see music both as a reflection of the mind of Iluvatar and as, um, you know, as as both not the reflection. That's not the right word. Where music is sort of the the outpouring of the thought of Iluvatar. It's 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 the expression of the very creative force of Iluvatar himself. And then that is in turn, um, you know, sort of embodied and and uh, not just reflected back, because as we saw last time, the Ainur are not simply, you know, sort of mirrors, or, you know, they're, they're not just bouncing his music back to them. Um, they're taking it and they're making it their own, and then they're bringing it forth uh, in that sort of uh, sub-creative process, not just reflection. But anyway, the way in which all of that stuff is tied up with music, that seems to be... Um, you know, a really critical element here, I would say. Um, Okay, let's see. Um, Don asks a great question. Was Tolkien a musician? No, so far as I know, he wasn't. Um, You'd think so, wouldn't you? Uh, You know, if you read this, you know, you'd think, oh, you know, he must have been a... lot. No, no, Um, he seemed to love the idea of music that you know for him music seemed to con- conceptually seems to convey something um which was obviously very powerful to him but um uh but uh no, I mean he it's and I'm not trying to say he's it's not that he wasn't musical at all but uh, uh you certainly wouldn't um you certainly wouldn't sort of know from his uh you know lifelong activities Again, it's not like he was somebody who was, uh, you know, that are playing um, instruments and stuff his whole life? Timothy points out that, of course, his his mother and wife were interested in music. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But again, it's not like he is a musician, and this is sort of um, kind of expressing him. Don, I yes, Don is fo- follows up by saying, uh, you know, perhaps a connection with the music of the spheres. It kind of do- it does seem to me that that is is one of the things that's really informing Tolkien's idea. It's, it's, this is not something that he's fundamentally inventing. The concept that expressed in music is an old, it's a medieval idea, um, that the spheres of the heavens resonate and make music. This is, this is, uh, uh, and that, 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 that fundamental harmony is this sort of deep and um, nonverbal, in a sense, sort of superverbal um, expression or articulation of God's love and the the sort of the the, the unity and harmony of all creation—that's um, an old and, and 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 very traditional idea. So um, that's that's um, very very often what I have uh, uh, associated the music of the Einer with, uh, and, and that seems to certainly inform it. But uh, moving on on the longing front for a second. Um, we get the character of Tin Fang Warble. Now, I'm going to hold off on talking about the Tin Fang Warble poems that Christopher Tolkien gives us. I am delighted that Christopher Tolkien gives us so much poetry. Um, one side note that I will permit myself uh, to indulge in here, um, though I'll save a close reading of the poems. That will be my reward if uh, uh, if we get through. Um, uh, if we if we get through the stuff that I plan to get through by next week, then then we'll do uh, some looking at the Tin Fang Warble poems. But um, but just you know, the thing that I would point out that I that I cannot forbear to digress on, you'll notice how this notice the poems that Christopher Tolkien gives us are usually earlier than the text of the of the of the lost tales that we're actually getting. That is um, most of the time these bits of poetry um... that uh... that that we get in, in, you know, at the end in the commentary or in in the notes Christopher Tolkien is showing us poetic ideas that pre-existed this stuff, these concepts that Tolkien has already sort of articulated or begun to feel out in poems which he then comes back and incorporates and thinks through and and, um, kind of ties together I think, you know, from a lot of the evidence that we can see of his earliest poetry, that, you know, this is some of the earliest poetry we have, This stuff that Christopher Tolkien is giving us here. Um, you know, you'll notice the stuff like the Tin Fang Wall poem. Um, you know, th- those, those poems are, like, from 1914, 1915, like, you know, really, really early. Um, and, um, you know, when we look at these poems and then they're, uh, the way that some of these ideas, not all and not exactly the same, uh, going back to the Cottage of Lost Play that we looked at in the first week, that to me, you know, the, the, uh, the, the relationship between you and me and the Cottage of Lost Play, and chapter one, you know, the, the, the frame narrative of the Lost Tales, that to me is a fascinating look at the relationship, how these ideas which Tolkien initially puts into poetry, um, in which, you know, these, these concepts he initially explores, and you and me in the cottage of lost play, as we saw this idea of the link between children and the dreams of children, um, with you know, with uh, with fairy, um, and uh, you know, and with this 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 cottage that he describes, and with the link between human beings, of course, in this case, um, apparently himself as Edith, his wife, um, but. But again, the point that I want to make there is, again, not the particular one about The Cottage of Lost Play, but the way in which it seems to me that this is fundamentally how Tolkien's mind tends to work, that when, that these ideas tend to bubble up in poems. um, And then they get processed and they get linked together. And this is one of the reasons why, to come back to a point that I've been making now for five years, um, why it's so important to read the poems that are embedded in The Lord of the Rings um, and The Hobbit, because in so many cases, I think that we can see um, that those poems are not, you know, people have the impression, especially people who skip over them, have the impression that these poems are static, right, you know, that we 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 look at um, the 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 story. You know, we're reading the story. We're going through, and then you know, Tolkien must have been like, "Well, now let's add some poetry to kind of jazz it up, or whatever." You know, it's like, "And now, time for a song. Let's let's do a musical. Let's let's add a musical number here." Uh, when in fact, it, in some cases, it seems uh, you know almost the opposite. That these these moments, these poetic moments arise, either have arisen before in the past and are you know, sort of a part of his early you know, sub-creative process, or they kind of bubble up within the poem, within the the story itself, uh, and really crystallize things that he is still yet working out in the story. Um, And I think there are some really interesting examples of that um, uh, in *The Lord of the Rings as well. I think of uh, Aragorn's spontaneous Gondor poem. Um, I think of uh, the, uh, you know, Where Now the Horse and the Rider um, poem that Aragorn uh, chants before they go into Medicel. There are a lot of things that we can see there um, that are only just kind of emerging uh, in the story, but that emerged first in the uh uh in the in 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 this poetry, and then get kind of brought together it's something that I'm still kind of working on I, I I would love to um continue to think about this more. This is something i could I could easily see myself writing about more later on as i as I, as we move forward but anyhow um I just want to draw attention to this fact this interesting fact that not only do we find you know all this stuff that keeps coming up you know we see oh he he's also written poetry about that. But notice the trend. Most of the poetry is earlier than this other stuff. That's his early thinking. If you want to really go back to the source of things, if, if your goal is to, is to sort of, you know, come as close as you can to striking bedrock and where these ideas really came from in Tolkien, don't go to the Lost Tales themselves, go to the poems. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so let's let's move on to Tin Fang Warble here. Uh, and, and again, we'll come back to the poems later on, I hope. Um This is right after um uh, uh Ariel has been well not complaining, but noting that he's been hearing tin feng warble you know this, this 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 sound out the window you know the the music at night out the window and and uh, it, you know he's heard about tin Feng warble and I don't know, is this is this him. there be none said Vire, not even of the solo simpi who can rival him therein that is in in music. "'Albeit those same pipers claim him as their kin. "'Yet tis said everywhere that this quaint spirit "'is neither wholly of the Valar nor of the Eldar, "'but is a half a fae of the woods and dells, "'one of the great companies of the children of Pelurian, "'and half a gnome, or a shoreland piper. "'How so that be, he is a wondrous, wise, and strange creature, "'and he fared hither away with the Eldar long ago, "'marching nor resting among them, "'but going always ahead, piping strangely, "'or whiles sitting aloof.' and skipping a little bit, I, said Ariel, and the hearts of those that hear him go beating with a quickened longing, meseemed t'was my desire to open the window and leap forth, so sweet was the air that came to me from without, nor might I drink deep enough, but as I listened, I wished to follow I know not whom, I know not whither, out into the magic of the world beneath the stars." So notice, again, this connection between longing and music, right? We have the longing in water, uh, you, know, uh, the, you know, the longing for the sea. Um, but in that passage in the music of the Einer, we were being told that, you know, in a sense, really, what underlies the longing for the sea, it's not like, in essence, you know, the reason that men long to go to sea is not because they're, you know, it's like, you know, adventure, or of the unknown, or any other explanation one might want to give for the longing for the sea, but rather it's the music of the water itself that calls to them and calls to them in some deep way. Um, here we see music again calling to someone and, and inciting this kind of longing. Um, I really love the way that um, uh, the way that Tolkien plays on words there in the second paragraph. Um, so sweet was the air air is the play here of course it's not just you know the air that's coming through the window but the air you know the 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 song that you know that's that's being played um and so he uses air i assume meaning song right so sweet was the air so sweet was the song that i was that i was hearing that came to me from without but then he goes on to to speak of it as if it's he's letting in sweet air through the window uh, you know, breathing it in. Um, nor might I drink deep enough. Um, you know, so the, the way in which he gives through that play on words this almost, you know, tangible, as if the music of Tin Vang Warble, the music that is coming in through the window, could itself be inhaled. You know, and 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 you know, he, he can't drink deeply enough of it. That itself is a metaphor. Um, you know, to 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 compare, uh, you know, breathing deeply of air to drinking deeply of water, but then both of them as a metaphor for taking in the music that he's hearing. I think that the whole sort of network of imagery that Tolkien creates there is really interesting and really fascinating and really indicative of the way that Ariel is trying to capture this, like, the longing, the desire uh, that the music awakes within him. Um. (laughs) Don says uh, Tin Fang Warbo is is a is a Pine Piper clone in a Tom Bombadil prototype. Uh yeah, you know, in some ways. Now you know, th- there are obviously differences there. I-, I don't think I could call him exactly a prototype of Tom Bombadil. Um but there are certainly some similarities. We're gonna come back to Tom Bombadil actually, Tom later on. Um uh yeah. Um Now, Sarah asks a a really good question, and Sarah, I too couldn't help but think about this as I was uh, reflecting on this and reading through these passages again. um, Sarah King asks, do I think uh, the longing that Tolkien is talking about here is the same thing as what C.S. Lewis called joy? Um, I don't know that it's the same. This is one thing you... Strong to both Lewis and Tolkien, and I know that that's not everybody. I know there are a large number of Tolkien fans who dislike C.S. Lewis, but I know that there are many people who are fans of both, and it's really easy when you're when you're fans of both and you know both as I certainly am. I I, I you know they're two of my favorite writers of all time, both of them, and um, it's really tempting to draw lines, right? That is to say, or really just skip over lines is really what I mean. That is to say, well, you know that Lewis and Tolkien were friends and they talked a lot and they kind of had a lot in common. So it, it, it becomes really tempting to sort of blur lines uh, between the two of them. And um, one of my one of my uh, sort of pet peeves in this uh, in this direction is somebody who's trying to articulate a point about Tolkien, right, they're trying to point to an idea that Tolkien seems to be getting at, or, or you know, this concept which seems implicit in something that Tolkien is saying, and they quote Lewis to, su- you know, to articulate it, to support it, you know, because Lewis did write many more, you know, sort of explicit Works of nonfiction. That it's easier to go to Lewis for a, a quote. If you're trying to sort of see, like, you know, here, you know, think back. Those of you who took the Two Towers class with me, um, you think of the wrestling that we did in that class about the concept of faith as Tolkien, uh, you know, depicts faith uh, and all that. You know, our, our our discussion of that word and how that concept seems to be applied. But I. Think it's disastrous? Well, not always disastrous. I don't always disagree with the conclusion people come to, but I always disagree with the method. Um, when you know you're sort of trying to uh, get trying to sort of articulate faith and talking, and then go to Lewis uh, to sort of uh, for a quote to kind of support it and back it up, and, and I'm always, I'm always, most cautious um, about that. Um, uh, but uh, you know, so uh, try not to do that. But but Sarah, as you say, I also couldn't resist this connection. Um, the fact that um, Tolkien and Lewis, both of them, for both of them, this concept of longing for something I don't know quite what um, is central to their thinking, and bo- central to both of their thinking way back, of course. Tolkien hadn't met Lewis when he wrote this stuff, so there's no question, there's no possible question of influence or anything here. Um, that's obviously totally off the table. But um, are they? You know, is there similarity between in their thinking? Oh yeah, yeah. They don't articulate it in the same way. They don't seem to conceptualize it in exactly the same way. But. But, you know, Sarah, I would, I think, I might I want to be careful because I haven't thought this through fully, but I might even go as far as to say if I had to point to the one most significant resonance between Tolkien's thinking and Lewis's thinking, um, the thing that on, on the sort of deep level they most have in common, um, I might, this might be the thing that I point to, um, The the role of longing and the stirring of desire in the heart. Um, because again, it's striking and and it's ten times more striking because they didn't influence each other in this way. You can see it in both of them before. This is why, you know, some of the other things, some of the other ideas that they share are to me interesting but less striking. As for instance, their uh, their, their, their treatment of myth and the their, their concepts of myth and mythology and the role that myth plays in their thinking also um, really striking and really important, I think, but less striking than this one, because there is influence there tolkien 's concept of myth, Tolkien talked Lewis around <laughs> on that point, um, you know Lewis a- admits this and, 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 and Tolkien talks of it, um, you know that Tolkien basically schooled Lewis on myth. Um, and it 's tolkien's concept of myth that Lewis then spends <laughs> the rest of his life um you know sort of defending and, and 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 talking about so when you see Lewis talking about myth that's um again it's it's sort of but but this 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 cuts way deeper than that in this way because we do see it sort of happening independently uh in that way um But uh, anyway, good. Good. Uh, Kate has two interesting comparisons. Coming back to Tin Fang Warble here and the impact that Tin Fang Warble has on Ariel. Um, Kate says, this reminded me of of the effect of Mary's horn on Sam during the scouring of the Shire, as well as a bit of the effect of Goldberry on Frodo. I think those are both really fascinating links. Kate, I'm especially fond. Um, of the second one, the first one it's true, I agree um the way in which people uh, they, you know the hearts of the hobbits are stirred when they hear um the uh, the the horn of Mary um, we certainly do get there a, a sort of a parallel with you know the, the the hearing of music and the stirring of the heart by music, but in some ways that's kind of a the 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 Mary's Horn version is it's sort of a much cruder version of this. It's like the it's a magic horn, and the magic of the horn is to sort of prompt um, people. To, but again, there's not that sense of of uh, kind of touching to the deep nature of. The human soul, right? Then, like the the ultimate nature of the human soul and the relationship between the human soul and the world and the human soul and God, right? Those are the things that seem to be evoked in this, you know, the description of the sea longing and in the this t- talking the tin fang warble. And so, Kate, this is where I keep coming back to. Um, uh, this is where I keep coming back to um, uh, uh, um, that Goldberry one. I think that's a really neat um, the way in which Tolkien, the the narrator of The Lord of the Rings, kind of grasps at comparisons, right? Uh, How to express what it was like for the hobbits to meet um, Goldberry. Um, I find those passages really, really interesting. Um, And so, Kate, I hadn't thought about putting them next to this, but I think that's a really great thing to do. Um, That that strikes me as... um, uh, as very as very right um, one um brief note i will come back to it later on. Um, Viro's explanation of who Fang warble is is I think really fascinating in this context, right He is um, not an elf. he is half a fey, and the fey um are not fairies. Fairy and Fey are not synonyms in the early language of the Lost Tales here. Um, fairies and elves, those are synonyms. But a fey is not a fairy. A Fae is one of the gods. In fact, a Fae of the Woods and Dells means what in later parlance he would call one of the Maiar. Um, the Fae are those of the spirits of the gods, the people of the gods as they are described. Um, these spirits who are not children of Iluvatar, um, who are associated with the gods. Um, so I, that's one important sort of distinction to make. But again, the way in which Tinfang Warble, who is the source of this music, who in, who you know who excites this longing um, in Ariel and indeed in everyone um the way that he is described as being this 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 mix he's the first it's the first in, you know, indication we get of anything like this of of uh, of any sort of actual joining between uh the elves uh and uh and the gods the elves uh and the fae the fairies and the fae in you know, the fact that he is of both worlds he is of the elves but he's also of the fae of the woods and the dells um uh and um you know, how so that be, we're not really sure, but he's a wondrous, wise, and strange creature. And it's part of both his strangeness and his uh, uh, wisdom and his wondrousness and the wondrousness of his wisdom that we see him connected, I think, in 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 both things. Um, uh, because, again, in some ways, it makes him almost a perfect embodiment of this longing, doesn't it? You know, that this longing is itself one of the things that draws... The elves that draws the children of Eluvitar, obviously it draws Ariel too, um, towards uh, towards the Fey, towards the gods, towards the world, towards Eluvitar. Again, all it's 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 all about you know harmony and bringing together and that desire. Um, so um, anyway, um, Chuck is asking, you know, what should we see uh, Tinfang um as, you know, as Pan, as connected with Pan. I'm resistant to that, Chuck, um, for a couple reasons. And actually, I I try to remember to come back to this explicitly. We're going to get to this kind of thing. Um, That is, to the issue of the relationship between the gods in the Lost Tales and the gods in sort of, you know, traditional, external, non-Tolkien pantheons. Um, I want to come back to that issue a little bit later on. But, um... uh, anyway okay let's see Just um, so looking through some comments that i missed here um, okay oh yeah arthur asks uh, uh... tin fang is luthien no tin fang warbles luthien's brother uh... there's one there's that one passage and this is why it's so important to read the notes because sometimes you get some really excellent nuggets uh... in the end notes uh... on uh... on, on these chapters um, uh... christopher tolkien gives this one um, this this note that Tolkien wrote and then crossed out, right, that said that Tin Feng Warble was the brother of Luthien, the child of uh, um, of Linwe Tinto and uh, and and Wendelin, that is to say, Thingol and Melian. Um, so and that's that that's a fascinating connection to think about again, he crossed that out right that's not that's not the case he He abandoned that idea, so we, we, i don't want to take it too far because it 's pretty clear that he abandoned that idea really quickly. I mean, he wrote it in the notes, so it wasn't part of the original story that he wrote, and then he crossed it out before it could be fully incorporated into it, so it was obviously only a fleeting idea in his mind. Um, but I find you know once that fleeting idea is planted in my mind it's hard to avoid um the uh uh the sort of further reflections uh that that it to me invites about Luthien herself out Tenuvial of course as she's still called um in uh in these in at, at at this point. Um and of course you know we we associate we've learned to associate Tenuvial with song and with the power of her song. Um so when you think about you know um Luthien versus Sauron in the Silmarillion um and uh you know Lúthien singing uh singing and dancing before Morgoth um to be think to remembering Tinfang Warble uh and this music that comes in from the night uh uh and the effect that it has i think is really uh, um uh is really fascinating both Sarah and Brianna have asked about uh, Dairon the minstrel um yes, Dairon the Minstrel is Luthien's brother in the early version. Um, so, you know, Sarah says he's, he's, he's more of a proto-Dairon, yes. In that sense, and I get you, I'm going to be really careful about this because it, it's, it simplifies and perhaps even in some ways sort of falsifies the actual, um, uh, the actual process of Tolkien's thought there. But there is a sense, nevertheless, in which um, Tin Fan Warble becomes Dairon, her brother, becomes Dairon the Minstrel, her, um, you know, on, uh, you know, the the guy who comes in second to Baron, ultimately, in the later version of the story, we, we can see some associations there. But again, you want to be really careful. Um, you certainly can not draw equal signs. You know, Ting Feng Warble equals Dairon, because even by the time... Um, you know, we get to Dairon as as uh, uh, you know brother of Luthien when he's first, mani- you know, he's manifested in the story in that way. We see that if I'm remembering correctly, that's that's he's her brother in uh, the Lay of Lathien, um in the you know, the poetic version that he writes um, up in the 20s. Um, so, but but again, he already even then he's a very different character from Fang Warble. I mean, it's not yes, he he's a musician um, and he's her brother uh, and he's you know. One of the greatest of the musicians, but he's he's not he's not Ting Feng Warble. You know he's not associated in this way with this kind of desire, with this kind of um, because of course you'll notice the other essential element of Ting Feng Warble of, of his character of his character is that he um, is elusive, right? You, you almost can never see him. He travels with the Eldar, um, but not with them before them right he goes before them singing so you know his music draws them on he's with them but he's not with them um, that's uh... an essential amane again very different um, from from uh... Dairon as he ever is um, Mariel, uh... maryl maryl has uh... this comment for ariel when he is asking for limpe um that's magic drink um, of the Eldar, which he desires to taste of, because he has this unquenchable longing, and he wants to. So we have Limpy. Remember that 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 um, imagery that Ariel was using in his description of his reaction uh, to um, uh, to 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 Tim Fang Warble and his music, uh, where he's taking in the music as if he's inhaling the air, but both of them as if he's drinking, and you know, the way that we get that that sort of metaphorical chain there. Um, but behind that and around that we have Limpe itself, which is literally a drink, which seems to be connected certainly in Ariel's mind. Um, and it's, it's explicitly connected with music and with the understanding of these things you can you gain those who drink of limpe gain this perfect understanding of all musics right they they um they become sort of in tuned with um uh they become they they become in in tune with uh with the music and these sort of deeper things um that uh uh, that he only has this very uncertain you know, he has this desire for, but very faint concept of. Um, but of course, he, so he, he speaks of drinking limpe as if it's going to solve his problem, right? I have this unquenchable longing problem, uh, and please just let me drink. Put, put me out of my misery, right? I, 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 I really desire to do that, even if it remains, means remaining here forever. Um, Merrill's comment. And hearken, O Ariel, think not to escape unquenchable longing with a draught of Limpe, for only wouldst thou thus exchange desires, replacing thy old ones with new and deeper and more keen. Desire unsatisfied dwells in the hearts of both those races that are called the children of Iluvatar, but with the Eldar most, for their hearts are filled with a vision of beauty in greater glory. Really fascinating idea. This is one of, those, uh, one of those moments in the Book of Lost Tales where I'm like, whoa, deep, deep thoughts here. And you can see Tolkien really wrestling with this. And it's one of the fascinating things about this mythology that he's writing is seeing him wrestle with these really deep concepts. And um, uh, desire unsatisfied dwells in the hearts of both those races that are called the children of the Lúvatar. It is essential to being... A child of the Luvatar to have not just desire dwelling in your hearts, but desire unsatisfied dwelling in your hearts. Um, so drinking limpe doesn't solve the problem, no. right? It, in a sense, makes it worse. If you want to call it worse, right? It's it's not bad. It's it's part of being who they are. Why are do, are the elder? Do, does Unsatisfied desire dwell most with the Eldar. Why is why, why do they have a bigger unsatisfied desire problem, if it's a problem, uh, than the Men do? Because their hearts are filled with a vision of beauty and greater glory, which is counterintuitive, right? Certainly counterintuitive to Ariel, who's like, "Look, give me a limpey, then I'll understand better, and then I'm not going to just be long. I'm not going to be." in the dark anymore, right? I'm not going to be just longing for something I know not what, then I'll know what, right? And then then I will have satisfied desire, and that'll be better. Um, No. No. Uh, The more you know, the more you desire. It's because the Eldar have a vision of beauty and great glory, because in a sense they do see clearer, and they do know more, and they are more closely in touch with these, and because of that, their desire their there's more um, unsatisfied desire that dwells in their hearts, not less um, uh, anyway so I think this is uh, uh, this is really fascinating uh, several people are, are thinking back to or rather thinking ahead way ahead uh, uh, in tolkien's chronology um, to the Baith, Um uh, Kate says, "This seems like a lecture for Ar-Ferizon, um as well as an answer to what happens to Frodo and Bilbo." Re- I- Kate, again, wonderful connections. Um, yes, yes, certainly, this is something. Um, now, uh, you know, I think this would have been lost on Arpharazon, who was by this point, or, you know, by the point at which he really needed a lecture, um, thinking only of power and not about desire at all. Um, but you know, I I too can't help but think about that debate between the elves and the Numenorians back when the Numenorians are still just starting to turn away, um, and when they talk about you know the desiring what the elves have. Note, this isn't the answer that the elves give them then, right? Um, uh, but it is fascinating to think about this in conjunction with this. Now again. We can't just take this early stuff and transplant it forward and and you know we certainly can't be like, you know, when we're trying to explain the Akalabeth and look at the arguments that the elves, you know, are, are making to the Numenorians in that debate, we certainly can't be like, well, here's what the elves are really good at. Let's quote from the Book of Lost Tales, right? And that'll help explain what they're really getting at. We can't do that, right? Because you know, concepts change. That's written much later than this. So, you know, we have to be careful in sort of following the development of Tolkien's thought. We don't want to Assume that he's still thinking about things in exactly those terms, whether he would articulate it differently later or whether even his entire concept has significantly changed. Many things about it will have significantly changed by that time. So we can't... We have to be very cautious in doing that and I always want to be sort of as scrupulous as possible uh, in doing that. But but I agree with you, Kate. That connection is really interesting, and certainly if we we can we can't just draw an equal sign in between them. We can't just quote the one to support the other, but we can think about them together, right? Um, we can uh, sort of put them side by side and consider them. And I think that when we do, um, as with those other comparisons, Kate, that you were suggesting earlier, it, it, it's really a, it raises some really interesting things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur asks, "Is this the seed of the theme of men wanting to be like the elves, and the cause of all their grief?" Again, again Arthur thinking of similar things, um, and going back to the uh, to these debates. You know, I don't. Arthur, in some ways, I think my answer to your question is yes. Is this the seed of the theme of men wanting to be like the elves, uh, and is this you know sort of the cause of all their grief? yes this is the but i'd emphasize seed your word seed right this is the seed of those things um that is all of the ways in which we see men envying the eldar whether it be you know sort of most explicitly with the um with the numenorians um you know or or sort of men being dissatisfied with their lot and their fate in other ways um this is the seat. that I do think that this unquenchable longing, this desire unsatisfied, um, which you know, whether it be sort of in in a, a a smaller way, like the 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 longing that the music of Tin Fang Warble it excites, or whether it be this sort of deeper, more. Um, more kind of ontological um, statement that Tolkien is making here um, about the nature of, uh, of you know, being a creature um, and what that implies. Um, this this concept, I think, of this unsatisfied desire is something that we will see Tolkien pursuing throughout his career. That I think that this is a concept, this is an idea, um, which is going to be essential to Tolkien's thought and his writing, always. Um, which is why I think it's so interesting to look at it here. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kate says, this is the fascination of the History of Middle-earth series, uh, to see how he is working things out. Like, he doesn't really know what he thinks uh, until he writes it down. Um, yeah, he's really working these things through. Again, remember, this is his first attempt at, at integrating these things into a consistent system. We all associate this with Tolkien. Right, We all know and love Tolkien as the guy who's so great at integrating systems. Um, it's, it's the world of Middle-earth and the, the, intimate, the, you know, the intricate interrelationship of all these things, the way in which it's such a consistent world and brought together. Yeah, Tolkien's really great at that. And here, we're seeing him try it for the first time. As we see, he's got these poems, right? These thoughts and these ideas and these concepts are floating around out there. He has even then he's even manifested some of them in particular stories. We've, you know, we, we, we know he's playing with the A. Arendel story that's already lying in the background, right, of the frame narrative. We see the references to A. Arendel there. Um, we know that some of the stories, uh, such as, for instance, The Fall of Gondolin, he's already written before he tries to put them all together here in Unfinished Tales. Um, So, you know, again, you've got the poems, you've got these isolated stories, and now you've got him trying to build these things together and show how they all fit together. So, yeah, Kate, absolutely, I think, we're seeing him really wrestling with these ideas for the first time. And that is so cool to see see what this sort of looks like. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And Kate, you're totally right about the fact that the concept of longing is an issue for the Valar as well. It's not just about... Um, Met and elves, and that's actually Kate. What I was thinking when I was saying just a minute ago um, that it seems to be for talking and es- for talking an essential element to being a creature, right? Not just a children, a child of the Luvatar, but a creature, a created being, um, and because it, because it does affect the Valar as well. Okay. Um, I'm not being a model of efficiency this evening, but that's okay. Because, um, you know, I've got next week to catch up, so it's like I have infinite time, so I don't have to worry about anything. That's pretty much the moral of the story that I'm taking out of this. Um, let's look at another one of these. I, I don't regret spending a lot of time on the Unquenchable Longing theme, this sort of this this deep mythic concept, um, which is so important for Tolkien. But there are other concepts which are going to be really important uh, in his thinking in the future. And I want to look next. Uh, <laughs> Nancy's laughing at me for calling a week infinite time. It's an extra week, you know. So since it's an extra week, I feel like, oh, boy, you know. Compared to trying to think of having to finish everything up tonight, it's like I've got, I've got the rest of the world, practically. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Anyway, um, I want to look at the trees. So here's his description um, about uh, how about about the trees coming um, coming to birth. Now in the midmost vale they digged two great pits, and those are leagues asunder, yet nigh together beside the vastness of that plain. In the one did almost set seven rocks of gold, brought from the most silent deeps of the sea, and a fragment was cast thereafter of the lamp that had burned awhile upon Helcar in the south. Then was the pit covered which with rich earths that Pelurian devised, and Vanna came, who loveth life and sunlight, and at whose song the flowers arise and open, and the murmur of her maidens round her was like to the merry noise of folk that stir abroad for the first time on a bright morning. There sang she the song of spring upon the mound, and danced about it, and wa- and watered it with great streams of that golden light that Olmo had brought from the spilled lakes. Yet was Kalalim, almost overflowing at the end. But in the other pit they cast three huge pearls that Ase found in the great sea. And pause here for a second. Um, as I'm doing this, uh, I meant to say this before I started reading the passage, but there's still time. Um, I want you to point out, what are some things that you notice? One of the things that we're getting, one of the reasons that I love this passage, it's I've not given you, of course, the passage which actually describes um, the sprouting of the trees. Instead, I find a real richness in this passage, because this gives us sort of the mythic concept that underlies the two trees. If you see what I mean, look at the descriptions that he's giving here and tell me what you see. What are the, uh, what do you think are the important elements or the important images that we get here? Um, how are we getting the two trees contextualized for us by this passage, if you see what I mean by that? Um, So I'd love to see your observations, what you think are really interesting and important elements in these descriptions. Back to number two. In the other pit, they cast three huge pearls that Asae found in the great sea, and a small star Varda cast after them, and they covered it with foam and white mists, and thereafter sprinkled lightly earth upon it. But Lorien, who loveth twilights and flittering shadows and sweet scents, borne upon evening winds, who is the lord of dreams and imaginings, sat nigh, and whispered swift, noiseless words, while his sprites played half-heard tunes beside him, like music stealing out into the dark from distant dwellings. And the gods poured upon that place rivers of the white radiance and silver light which Celindrin which held even to the brim, and after their pouring was Celindrin yet well nigh full. Okay. What do we see here? What do you notice? Um. Okay. Neil is pointing to the seven rocks of gold. Um, yes, yes, I find that really fascinating, and Neil then generalizes a little bit later on. Um, Treasures from the sea. Nancy also pointing out that we have both um, the rocks of gold and the pearls right, from the sea. Um, now again we 've already looked at the the significance of the sea, well not the only significance of the sea, um, but what 's emphasized about the sea and how the sea you know contains this reflection or even sort of echo or continuation uh, of the music of the Ainur. Um, so that seems to be uh, that seems to me a non coincidental link right that at the bottom. Um, you know, in some sense—not in a structural sense, but in a in a sort of figurative sense—the foundation of each of these mounds, from which the trees are going to spring, you within know, these things, which where, where the, uh, um, you know, these things which are going to nourish the lives of the two trees. The trees are spoken of as the great work of yovana right? Um, remember that you know the conversation with Fanor when he's being asked to break the Silmarils to to enable the trees to be healed. Um, and you know because and Yvanna has just said you know there's there's some works that I can only you know do once and is like yeah me too right so again the the parallel that's established there we have the, the Silmarils is obviously the great masterwork of Fëanor and the trees are the great masterwork of Yvanna right so chris i agree we don't have um the trees as being the great just simply the great masterwork of Pelurian, um as she's more commonly called here in uh um, uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, um, it's much more of a group of effort. So I think that that's a really important observation. We see the trees as in this way more essentially connected um, to all of the Valar—not quite all, but many of the Valar here. Um, Olmo's contribution and 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 Pelurian is there, but also Vana. Um, and yeah. So you we we see uh, in Lorien, of course, with the with the other tree. Um, all of those are 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 really essential. Good. Kate was just making exactly the same point, Kate Neville, um about the group effort. Good, good. Um yeah, Kate adds, there they're are more elements than simply light. Um they're like an entire outgrowth of, of Arda and the Valar. Um yes, there's a way in which it does seem that again, instead of conceiving of the trees as the masterwork of Yavanna or Pelurium, Instead, we have the trees, almost as if they are the 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 fruit. The um, uh, I don't want to say culmination because it's not like they are the ultimate thing. But it's like they are the the entire world plus the Valar bearing fruit, right? And the trees are themselves the fruit of that. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, I see you guys lost me for a little bit. Um, am I back here now? Um, tell me when you lost me, because I know this is. I'm. I'm one problem with being not at home. I'm using wireless. The wireless here is really good, but sometimes wireless goes out for a second. So I'm sure that that's what happened. Somebody tell me where you lost me, and I'll 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 restate something. Um, Okay, back now. That's good. Right. What was the last thing you heard before I went away? Um, Okay, okay. Do I remember where I left? Um, okay, just at the beginning of when I was talking about group effort. So I, I do want to go back and say, I just want to make sure to, to sort of get clear um, where we lost it there. Um, okay. I'll do that again then just to make sure we don't we don't we don't lose that and please do tell me feel free to tell me right away uh, if you're losing me again I apologize for that happening as I said it's um, not quite as reliable as the wired connection I'm able to do at home um, okay the trees are more of a group effort Chris Stevens rightly points this out Kate Neville makes the same observation and this strikes me as a really essential element something that's really fascinating about um, about the trees as he depicts them here um, what I was saying when I think I was gone is that we see in the later published Silmarillion that the trees are more characterized as the masterwork of Yavanna, right? And there's that scene with, the with you know, when Feanor is asked to break the Silmarils where we have the explicit link, or the explicit parallel, rather, between the Silmarils as Feanor's masterwork and the trees as Yavanna's masterwork. Both of them have done a great work which they can't replicate, right? Um, and here we see the trees not as the masterwork of Yavanna at all, um, but rather a collaborative effort of all of them. And I like um, Kate's, the way that Kate articulates that, um, that they are, um, uh, that, they, you know, it's, it's it's like all of Arda and the Valar coming together. And that does seem to me right here, um, that they are the word that Alyssa, Thomas suggests is epitome. They're like the epitome of the Valar and the world. I think in some ways that works, especially if you use epitome uh, in its old sense. Uh, you know, like the sense in which John Dunn used to use the word epitome. Um, but, um, uh, but, but I would even say, you know, they are like the bearing of fruit of all of these things. Um, almost like, rather than like the product of one of the gods, they are, in this, they are in almost like the children of all of these things together. They are the offspring of their thought, <laughs> right? Um, and that element, I think, is much more heavily emphasized here. Um, good, good. Um, now, this relationship to um, the... Let's see... Um, this relationship to light, um, you know, Neil was pointing out the golden light from this from the from the spilled lakes. This, I think, is a really interesting element of the Lost Tales story. Um, many of you will have observed before that this idea of light as a liquid substance um, is still implicit in many of in much of the language of the published Silmarillion. We can still um, you know the way that um, the way that uh, uh, Ungoliant comes in and sucks the light out of the tree as as you know she sucks it's very sap in life. The way that the light of them is collected like dew and fills vats. You know so we still get um, even in the published Silmarillion um, that language which conceptualizes light as this like tangible liquid substance that trend, of course, is much more emphatic in The Lost Tales. We see that that idea um, is still there in the published Silmarillion, but it's been toned way down from where it was before. Um, The idea of the lamps, the great lamps of light being spilled, and that liquid light um, running out and being lost, and then sort of gathering up and trying to retain as much of that light uh, as possible. uh, is uh, is is a is a, a fascinating concept. For this reason, therefore, again, there's like this conservation of light thing going on, right? In order to have the trees, the trees are um, are again kind of an embodiment of this. They draw upon this these lakes of light that they've collected there in Valinor. It doesn't just work the other way around. The trees are themselves like the living source of light in Valinor. Um, in the later version they're the replacement of the lamps right here um, it functions very differently um and we have this idea almost like there's a certain amount of light that's created and it's you know embodied in this liquid and uh uh and you they 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 don't make any more of it you know the 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 trees are not generating light they're recycling it (laughs) Right. Um yeah, exactly. As Chris points out, they have to be watered by the light. Absolutely. Um it's like um you know in in, in Valinor we don't have the water cycle, we have the light cycle, right? <laughs> you know, from the bats to the trees and back to the bats. Um uh and it even uh, you know speaking of that, it's even actually descending. Um Light and beauty is in Valinor, but there is a deep twilight upon the world for the gods have gathered so much of that light that had before flowed about the airs. Seldom now falls the shimmering rain as it was used, and there reigns a gloom lit with pale streaks or shot with red where Melko spouts to heaven from a fire-torn hill. Um, this is a passage, of course later on, but its it's fascinating to me in sort of seeing this, the way in which we see this not metaphorically but literally. Uh, being embodied within the story here, this idea, again, it's not water, or light as liquid is not just a metaphor, Um, it's a a physical fact in Middle-earth here. Um, uh, And so again, here we see the light cycle going on in Middle-earth as well. Um, Shimmering rain seems to be actual rain of light. But of course, we also see the way that this to crudely adapt the metaphor in a different way, the way in which this shines a light upon the Valar and the choices that they're making. Um, Arthur points out that we have, you know, here, uh, greedy gods keeping the light for themselves. Yeah, we do get that element with the Valar here. Um, This passage really jumped out at me as a kind of indictment, I think. and, uh, you know, and we'll come back to that when we look at the, the way in which the choice to invite the elves, you know, the Eldar, to come live with them in Valinor, the way that that's depicted here in the Lost Tales, which is pretty striking compared to the published Silmarillion. But, um, but yeah, that light, they've hoarded it, um, and they're not sharing it. Not only are they not sharing it, they've drawn it away. Middle-earth is now dark. The great lands are now left in twilight, because all the light and beauty is being hoarded in Valinor uh... you know, we're not getting dragon imagery here, you know, it's not, you know, I I don't feel safe in making that comparison Um, but of course notice by saying that I've made it implicitly anyway Um, and to me one of the consequences of that, one of the fascinating consequences of that is the implications about Melko there Pale streaks are shot with red where Melko spouts to heaven from a fire-torn hill, Middle Earth, you know the great lands as uh, you know when the Valar leave them and go to Valinor, um, being sort of abandoned uh, to Melkor and uh, and uh, Melko, excuse me, and um, a uh, you know a, a, at the mercy of of his creatures and of his tumults, um, that's still here, uh, or rather. That was there originally here in the Book of Lost Tales, but the way in which we get on the one hand the hoarding of the light by the Valar and then the pale street, you know, the, 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 the red shots of light where Milko spouts to heaven from a fire-torn hill, it's still the tumults and, and the violence which Middle-earth itself, which the land of Middle-earth is, to which it's being subjected um, by the discord of Melko, And yet, it's the only light around, right? Um, and that again, to me, is an even more powerful indictment, um, uh, which I think is is really, is really fascinating. Um, yeah, and, but Chris, you're right, that is retained. There is an element of that which is still retained in the Silmarillion, that the light of the trees is blocked from Middle-earth, It only is enabled to come out through the caliperia, right, through the gap. Um, uh, yeah, good, and Nancy had just been making exactly the same observation I was just making. Melko's the only one who's providing light at this point. Um yeah, 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 I agree. Um yes, you're and Chris, you're right, this this element is is still there, but it's um uh I, I think it's it's much more emphatic here, the way in which this is clearly an indictment. Clearly the Valar not getting things right. Is um, uh, is something that, uh, that that I think is much more prominent um, in this text. Um, okay, I want to move on a little bit to the sort of the nature of the Valar as we see them, um, and not just the Valar. Um, here's the description of those whom we will later call, well, no, it's actually not this one. Again, back to the state of the great lands. Um, after the Valar left, leave. At that time did many strange spirits fare into the world, for there were pleasant places, dark and quiet, for them to dwell in. Some came from Mandos, aged spirits that journeyed from Iluvatar with him, who are older than the world and very gloomy and secret, and some from the fortresses of the north, where Melko then dwelt in the deep dungeons of Atomna. Full of evil and unwholesome were they, lurking, luring and restlessness and horror they brought turning the dark into an ill and fearful thing, which it was not before. But some few danced thither with gentle feet, exuding evening scents, and these came from the gardens of Lorien. Okay. I wanted to bring that. this is t- to me sort of a transitional thing. I want to move to look at the nature of the, of, of the gods, the nature of the Maiar and the Valar um, as, we, as we see them depicted and, and, and what kind of general conclusions we can draw about that. But I want to touch on this first. Um, not only because we get here sort of a glimpse of these other spirits and we see sort of these, what will later be called Maiar in um, um, sort of in action here, But I wanted to bring this up also because I think that this is another really powerful mythic idea that we'll see Tolkien working with uh, later in his career, uh, for which I think we can see lots of survivals in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings still, and that is this idea that the world is full of strange spirits that fare around in the world. Um, Think of the number of times in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings when we encounter in the story. Beings and spirits who don't have anything to do with the story, who don't have any, who who aren't necessarily on anybody's side, right, um, who are just there and have been there for who knows how long. Um, this, I think, is a mythic concept that we see Tolkien never loses. The idea that the world is full of, um, is peopled with these strange uh... sometimes hostile sometimes not hostile but still kind of scary uh... and uh, gloomy and secret uh... and all of these things You know, sometimes we get uh, beautiful spirits dancing with gentle feet and exuding evening scents sometimes we get um, uh... we get gloomy and secret spirits sometimes we get evil and unwholesome spirits um, lots of different kinds of spirits, but of course I'm sure you can all think of many examples of this kind of thing. Um, Chris, yeah, Tom Bombadil. Now again, I know Tom Bombadil is a separate history and there's the, you know, the the poem of the adventures of Tom Bombadil and all that. That's not what I'm saying. The point is this idea that you can go into the Old Forest. Think of the Old Forest, right? The Old Forest is a perfect example of this. All over, again and again, in many different ways, right? You have old men with right? You know, you have this old spirit of the tree um, with, whose song fills the whole valley, and, uh, you know, and who's he? You know, where's he from? What's, what's up with him? What's his story? We don't know. You know, he's just been there. Tom Bombadil, Goldberry, right? they are spirits who are there, who've been there for a long time. Um, but um, then you have, and, and, and Kate, yes, the stone giants. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um uh then you have uh, uh but again the old forest, the barrow whites too, right? Again, I know they're given a, they're given a, they're given more of a history um later on uh in uh, uh in the appendices. Um you know, spirits that were sent by the you know the the witch king to fill the barrels, whatever. But but again, just the concept of as we wander through this land in the story, we encounter things, the watcher in the water, right? Those nameless, th- you know, those nameless things that gnaw the earth at the roots of the mountain that Gandalf encountered um, when he was uh, pursuing the Balrog up to the peak after his fall. Right, the Balrog itself. Right, that we have wakened something that you know should have remained at rest. Uh, you know, the the fact. All of these things. All of these. Things, again, this you there's so many examples that you can come to. Uh, again and again, um, there are all of these spirits around. Um, the world is crowded. With this kind of mystery, and many of them are scary, right? This seems to be again a concept that, although he doesn't dwell on it that much, and and you know, they and they, in the sense of sort of theorizing about it and making them a central part um, uh, of uh, uh, a, a a central part of of, of his. Again, they they significant roles in these episodes in the story, but we never get their stories, right? We never see, um, you know, they're not woven into um, the story. Um, they pass in and out, or rather, the people as they wander pass in and out of their areas that they've been in for a really long time. Um, anyway, anyway, um, Arthur asks a great question about those. Um, why doesn't Sauron know them? And how can they be older than he? Uh, quoting, of course, Gandalf here, who says those things, you know, descri- describing those nameless things that know the earth. Um, even Sauron knows them. Not they are older than he. Gandalf says. Um, Arthur is asking, how is that possible? Okay. Here's a uh, here's a a a very tentative kind of answer to that question, Arthur. I find the question of older, or eldest, to be a sort of a vexed question. Um, this, I come back to the sort of the famous debate, this is not quite as famous, as famous a debate as the, uh, the legendary debate of whether or not Balrogs have wings. No, there's nothing really to debate about. But anyway, um, I, I, less well-known than that is still the old debate about who's actually the oldest, Tom Bombadil or Treebeard. They're both called eldest. Right, um, uh, you know, uh, eldest and fatherless is Tom Bombadil, and 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 uh, you know, Celeborn calls uh, calls Treebeard eldest. Uh, you know, maybe you could chalk that up to, you know, it's Celeborn. But I'm just kidding. I, said I I really shouldn't go out of my way to make fun of Keleborn on every occasion that I have uh, the opportunity to do so. That would just be uncharitable. But anyhow, um, <laughs> but again, this question. I feel here's my theory, Arthur for what it's worth, my theory is that the problem that people have in debating the question of age, or Arthur, as you say, how can they be older than Sauron? Like, conceptually, how's that even possible? Sauron is a Maya. He he was presumably there at the music, right? Um, So how can anyone be older than him? Um, I think the problem here stems from our conceptualizing the question of age as, how long has it been since you came into being? Right? It's usually what we mean, right? When somebody says, how old are you? They mean, how long has it been since you were born, right? I don't think that that's the way the concept of age and eldest are being invoked, either with Tom Bombado or with Treebeard or about the nameless things beneath the earth here, Um when you have a whole passel of things, you know, um, Valar and Mayar and everybody else, who all seem to originate at the beginning, who all predate, you know, the creation of the world, that question of, like, you know, how old are you in the sense of how many years has it been since you were born is a completely meaningless question. Um, However, um, how I understand it, therefore, since I do think that way of thinking of it is kind of meaningless, um, for, for especially for creatures who predate the world, I think that what it does tend to point to are how, how long they have endured in what they are doing. Tom Bombadil is eldest because he has been... There. Think about that long speech he has about, you know, Tom was here before this and before that and before that. He predates everything and everybody. He has been there before anybody else was there, right? And by there, I mean principally where he is, right? Um, it's not to say that he, again, was created prior to other Maiar or something like that. Um, rather, you know, he has this sort of claim of antiquity, um, and he is nobody's successor, right? He is nobody's successor. He's this is this is, and uh, uh, with things being older than Sauron, Sauron is. Just passing through, compared to these things, they've been there. Sauron was amusing himself up in Beleriand, and then doing goodness knows what beforehand. Um, You know, uh, 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 you know, serving under Melkor up in Utumno. But meanwhile, these nameless things gnawing the roots of the earth—they've been gnawing down there this whole time, right? Sauron doesn't know them because he doesn't pay any attention to them. What you know? He's he he doesn't he doesn't see them he doesn't govern them he doesn't he's 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 not met them we don't really know but uh, uh, we we clearly have um, uh, Sauron, you know so again it's not that they're older than he but they've been there for longer Sauron is a local phenomenon right he's just passing through Middle Earth compared to these guys right that's how I understand that I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's right. You know, Chuck says maybe the question should be when did they come into the world. Maybe, but again, I even think in the sense of how long have they been in one place seems to be impacting it also. Um, that, again, one of the things that makes Tom Bombadil be able to claim, I am eldest, is like, I have been here in this spot for longer <laughs> than anybody else. Um, and not only longer than anybody else has been in that spot, but arguably longer than anybody else has been in any spot, right? Um, or at least as long as anybody else. Um but um, anyhow, so uh, so that's that's a, my probably inadequate uh, explanation of that. But 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 a good question, uh, Arthur. Okay, so um, so again, I want to point to these strange spirits, but let's go to the familiar spirits. Um, about them about the valor that is, fared a great host, who are the sprites of trees and woods, of dale and forest and mountainside, or those that, sang, that sing amid the grass at morning, and chant among the standing corn at eve. These are the Nermir and the Tavari, Nandini and Orosi, Brownies, Fays, Pixies, Leprons, and what else are they not called, for their number is very great. Yet must they not be confused with the Eldar, for they were born before the world, and are older than its oldest, and are not of it, but laugh at it much, for had they not somewhat to do with its making, so that it is for the most part a play for them. But the Eldar are of the world, and love it with a great and burning love, and are wistful in all their happiness for that reason." Um, so much here. Uh, And I'd like to start with that last point because it connects most to the things we've been talking about before. That is the difference between the nature of the love of the Eldar for the world, uh, the difference between that and the love of these Fey of of these Fays for the world. Um, The Fays were born before the world, and they're not of it, but they laugh at it much because they had to do with its making. Um, It is, for the most part, a play for them. It's something that they are are separate from it, they are are observing it, and they're often laughing at it. But the Eldar don't laugh at the world. They love it, the world, with a great and burning love, because they are of the world. And they are wistful in all their happiness for that reason. Um, yeah. Now, um, the other the the other thing I wanted to to mention, of course, about this, so the primary thing I wanted to talk about, are these names for these spirits, for these faes. That creeps out. Fae, of course, is one. Brownies, pixies, Leprons. We we move first from names in Tolkien's languages, to quite familiar names, right? Brownies, Pixies, Leprons, Fays. Um, what do you make of this? Think about Tolkien as writing mythology, right? What does this suggest to us? What conclusions um, can we begin to draw about Tolkien's mythology and his approach to mythology by the fact that he has included the words brownies, fays, pixies, leprons, to describe these creatures. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, I find this really revealing. Um, one obvious conclusion is that he is clearly not... He's explicitly not trying to draw a separate and independent mythology, right? He's not suggesting that this is totally independent um, of, the, of the, the, you know, the historical mythology of our world. In fact, he's going out of his way to draw connections between those. He's already done this. Remember, it, we've already been told that the names of the gods, the names of the Valar among men, are many right? Um, There is this, um, um, yeah, Kate says, I saw this as a way to try to fit current folk traditions into his mythology. Hmm. Yes, yes, definitely, Kate. I'm pausing, though, because I wouldn't put it in exactly that way. It's not about fitting folk folk traditions into his mythology um yeah daniel more like that daniel morris says it's almost like a real history of these familiar terms um yes yes um uh that that that's more uh daniel the direction that i was that that i am thinking about it um he's pointing to something which underlies all of these things that this work of integration that he's doing um he is not writing an alternative mythology. He's writing a mythology which embraces the tr- the local traditions, right? Um, remember, he's not just writing a mythology for England. He's writing a mythology of England, right? These traditional stories that people have, they came from somewhere, right? They're not made up. They're not just invented. Um... They have their, you know, in this way, let me see if I can do this without digressing for too long. Uh, I'll try. Medieval cosmology of the sort of medieval mythology, in the sense that when the medievals looked back at pagan mythology, they didn't chuck it out. The medievals didn't, by and large. They had way too much respect um, for the ancients and their learning and their wisdom. Um, some modern people have the idea that the Christian Middle Ages looked, back, looked down upon pagan mythology and were like, oh, don't read that trash, that stuff is wrong, it's full of lies, and... Uh, Christianity is the truth. Forget about that. Pay no attention to the pagan mythology. Purge it away. That was not at all their approach. It was not at all their thinking. Um, uh, there certainly was the school of thought that said those creatures which the pagans worshipped as gods were demons who were deceiving them. Right. Um, that was a school of thought that existed, but that's... In many, it, 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 as evidenced by the way that they articulated, by, as evidenced by much of their theology and almost all of their poetry, that's not the primary way that the medievals thought about pagan mythology. They believed that the pagans, again, they were very wise. They didn't have the whole truth, which they can't be blamed for, because it wasn't revealed to them, right? God didn't tell them this stuff. God didn't give them the Bible, right? They didn't know these things. They didn't know the, the, the fundamental nature of things, but they made observations. And the observations that they made about how nature works and all of this stuff, this was, um, uh, those observations were true. They perceived true things about the world. What they lacked was how to fit that into the big frame, right? Um, so when the, when the ancients perceived that there were these divine beings, who influenced the world in particular ways, um, they, the ancients, were perceiving that which is true. And the medievals believed that. The medievals believed that there was a a, a super-powerful spiritual being um, who dwells in the third sphere, who has feminine characteristics... Um, and who influences the world in a particular way, namely, uh, to induce peace and harmony among peoples, and to induce uh, love and harmony between individuals. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Venus. Um, We're talking about, uh, 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 you know, they perceive this as the goddess Venus. Um, uh, the Medieval said, yes, she's there, she's, but she's not a, you know, this is, this is not a polytheistic system, she's an angelic spirit, There's a, there is indeed a planetary intelligence, as she was called, um, who is, who is, that's what they were perceiving, they didn't understand the hierarchy into which those beings fit, um, and the, what Christians could do is not chuck out the whole old system and build an entirely new system premised upon the Bible, but rather the Bible gave them the ability to put things together and to see here's really the big picture that the ancients couldn't see. That's um, that's Again, that's how the medievals looked at older mythologies and how they related themselves. It wasn't just about them borrowing elements from older mythologies. It was about them embracing elements of older mythologies and recognizing again that the ancients perceived much truth. They just didn't come fit it all together. They didn't know the whole story, right? Um, the rest of the story, the the the, the overarching elements have been given uh, to Christians. They haven't figured it out. They're not smarter. Everybody knows that the ancients were much smarter than we are. Um, Tolkien isn't exactly operating in that same world here, but it's but it seems to me that there's kind of an element there. That um he's not claiming that his invented mythology here stands in relation to traditional um, you know, folk ideas as you know, Christian theology stands to pagan mythology. You know, he's not saying you know, I am writing the new great and authoritative mythology and I don't want to give that impression because that's not how I think that it operates. But um, what he is doing in sort of a smaller scale is sort of taking, remember when he talked about the mythology for England, um, He it wasn't just a sort of a spiritual, like a cosmological mythology that he was wanting to build in particular. It was it was, it was fairy stuff, right? That there are no fairy legends that are natively English. That's what he wanted to supply. So what he does do, what we see him doing, and this is one of the most overt places where we can catch him doing it, is going back and looking at um, those traditional fairy stories, which have come through, but, they, but not in any clear way, not in any articulated way, but this evidence, sometimes evidence even just in local traditions, um, of you know of, of of things like brownies and pixies, um, where we can see some concept of fairy, right? But he's going to take and he's going to he's going to build this structure, this overarching mythological structure, which which shows us the big picture that underlies all of these things. So, why is it that stories about pixies and brownies and fays and leprons have come down to us, right? What underlies those things? Um, uh, they're not just random silly stories to be dismissed, but they don't tell the whole story either, right? Just like the pagan myths are not silly stories to be dismissed, but they don't tell the whole story, right? The story of 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 Venus and her relationship with Mars, um, that's, it doesn't tell the whole truth, right? And it, it doesn't convey, you know, uh, everything you need to know about mythology, but it's also not to be thrown out either. There's truth there. But we have to be able to contextualize it. Tolkien is contextualizing the fairy elements, right? And we see him explicitly doing this. And this then brings me to... Um, oh, and Sarah, yes. Sarah points out... Thanks for uh, pointing this out. She says, It's interesting that these are not faded elves. Um, they aren't and, haven't and, have and never have been elves at all. Yes, he's making that distinction. But we do get the faded elves later on. Um, and what we... We'll see, eventually, guess what happens to elves as they fade in this early conception? They get smaller. Um, We see him, even. his mythology is even going to, in this early phases of his mythology, his mythology is even going to embrace Tinkerbell. It's even going to embrace diminutive buttercup fairies and explain how buttercup fairies came to be buttercup fairies. He's not ditched that idea. He's not rejected it yet. Not in this early stage because we can see that. We've already talked about how we get him dealing with issues of diminutiveness uh, in, in the fairies um, already in this story, when we, we, we see more of it eventually uh, as we go through the Lost Tales. Anyway, um, from here also, we can get the um, uh, the the larger picture of the um, uh, of the 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 pantheon of the gods of the Valar themselves um, and the thinking thinking about the relationship between I'm always resistant this is something that's almost inescapable um, and I found this in class this happens all the time whenever I uh, would teach excuse me would teach my Tolkien class on the undergrad level uh, we start going through the Valar, right, and I'll start putting, you know, like the names of the the Valar up on the board and everything. And, um, students are always doing equivalence in their heads, right. They're always looking at this song, okay, Menwe, okay, Zeus, got it, right, right. Olmo, eh, okay, right. Mm-hmm, Poseidon, I'm with you, right. And I always try to resist them, like, no, 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 stop, don't do that, don't do that, don't, don't put an equal sign. Now again, obviously, it's not that there's no connection there. The link, you know, the similarity between Manway and Zeus is not a coincidence. The similarity between Poseidon and Olmo is not a coincidence. Um, to- the similarity between Tolkys and Thor, Nancy, is not a coincidence. No, I agree, it's not a coincidence. But, but I still say, be careful, don't put an equal sign. And When you put an equal sign, I think that your you, one begins uh, to miss the point in some really important ways about what Tolkien is doing in his mythology. He is not just saying, you know, Manway is code word for, you know, for 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 Zeus or for Jupiter. No, he's not. Um, instead, what we're getting again, this, this this sort of the overall spirit of this is we're being this is being revealed to us as if this is this is the truth that underlies that, right? Um, Yes, there are uncoincidental similarities between Thor and Tolkas and between uh, uh, and between Zeus and Manwe not because they're exactly identical but because those are different names, those are different concepts Um, they have been, you know, what we're being told here again is sort of what what underlies those um so is Tokus Thor sure in a certain way, I can see that. Not in all ways, right? They're not identical, they're not exactly the same, they're quite similar in some ways, uh, in many ways even. But again, what he's pointing to is uh is I can remember the names of the of the gods among men are many, right? And we have this idea of uh, part of the 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 fictional frame uh, part well not the frame, not the how does it lost play uh, frame. I don't mean that. I mean part of the, the 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 fictional um framework of this whole mythology is that um again we're sort of seeing behind those things in a way that that the mythologies of human history are later and less well informed less well-informed than the elves, certainly, uh, because the elves came and dwelt among the gods. They know who Tokus is, what his names are, and what he's like, right? Um, Other humans who lived much later and who don't know them as well perceived some things about them, which are true, and other things, you know, that are sort of, of, you know, different. Um, Yes, Andrew, it's about Archetypes, uh, in in some ways, absolutely. Um, uh, we're getting here. Are the you know the the you know even the descriptions of the Valar themselves is often metaphorical, right? You know, we're being they're being character because even their physical representations are in some ways just a sort of a manifestation of a part of their. A, a part of their essence. It's not even that the description of them of you know their physical descriptions and their words and actions are necessarily, you know, the true description of them, whereas the others are more partial. Again, it's not even really about that. Um, even those descriptions and manifestations are only partial. Um, but there is this this sort of this thing that dwells above it, this this uh this this essence, this archetype behind all of these things. So it's it's the idea of getting you know again not equating the two of them, but getting past you know taking Manway and taking uh, you know Jupiter and 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 other versions and concepts that are similar and seeing what is you know being invited. I think to see sort of what is beyond how all of this fits together. Um, but that's not the overall effect of this story, one of the things that fascinates me about the Lost Tales is at the same time as as I think we can see this movement happening uh, in Tolkien's mythology as it's articulated here, um, this movement for sort of, again, showing what lies behind all of this stuff, it also is very much an example of one of those mythologies, right? That is, we see the gods acting in ways which are much less remote. This idea of the Valar as archetypes feels much more like the Silmarillion, doesn't it? The published Silmarillion? Manwe doesn't have that much of a personality. He has some personality, but not that much of a personality. Tolgus has a great personality, but again we don't get that much of him. Um, uh, Aule is different. The gods are, in their description, the Valar uh, in the published Silmarillion, are far more remote. They're less personable, right? They're less like people. Their personalities are less um, are less... They they become, in the later version, less well-rounded characters, right? Um, and that is one of the things that I think is really interesting about this, what the stories that we get of the actions of the Valar. Um, they're trooping out To capture Melkor, think. I mean, that's a fascinating comparison. Not just the differences in the story—that is, the differences in how they approach Melkor to chain him compared to you know, in in the Lost Tales to the published Silmarillion—but the the overall attitude, the, the the tone of its description, right? the way in which we get, in the published Silmarillion, this description of, like, then did the Valar make war upon, uh, upon Melkor, and it's, you know, we have this this, uh, uh, you know, bigger picture sort of survey discussion remember Christopher Tolkien in the introduction talking about the difference between, you know, being in close to the characters and sort of stepping back and giving a, giving a sort of a synopsis of what happened. But, you know, the effect of that choice of giving the Silmarillion stories as that kind of a synopsis also has a significant impact upon the depiction of the characters. When we just hear, and then the Valar went and made war upon Milkor, and then you know, and and and, and cast Melkor down on his face, that conveys a very different character. We we think about the the the, the Valar very differently um, when we read that. Than we do when we get this description of them and their battle array as they march out and then their debates with each other and uh, and uh, and uh, you know the, their plan to trick Melkor and why they decide to trick Melkor and then how, like, Tolkien blows the plan, <laughs> right, and just decides, no, I can't follow through with the, the, the careful plan that we made, I'm just gonna jump up and, and, uh, and, and capture Melkor and that works out perfectly fine. Um, you know, all of these things are elements that we don't get uh, in the other story and the result is that the, the, the Vala look much more human, I think. And that seems to put the whole sort of mythology in a very on a very different footing. Um, that is the, the 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 mythological stories about the gods in a very different footing, um, much more like a traditional mythology in this way. Anyway, um, I'm keeping you guys way late, and I should let you go. I want to, as I say, next time come back to the. Um, uh, the children of Iluvatar and the fates of the children of Iluvatar will come back around to looking at the Valar and their choices more in that context, especially. Um, uh, and I'll probably come back and uh, allude more to, or, you know, talk a little bit more about the chaining of Melko in the context of, you know, because we have those two major debates, right? Um, in these two major decisions that we see the Valar coming together to make, um, one is the the decision about chaining Melko, and then the second one is the decision about what to do about the LDR. So we'll probably talk about that too. But um, uh, but what we'll save we'll save the rest of this stuff for next time. So next time, plenty of stuff to talk about. Right on schedule. Not worried. Everything's going to be great. Uh, thanks for joining me, everybody. Um, next week, I'm still not going to be back home, but I'm going to be in a different place. Uh, so uh, you know, keep my fingers crossed that that works out. I hope um, I will let you guys know if there's any. Disruption to the plan, but my plan is still to hold class as normal at the regularly scheduled time next week. So uh, let's hope uh, let's hope that that works out okay. Anyway, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. Good night.